Well, take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy as we're making our way through the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy chapter 4 this evening. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we began in chapter 4 last Sunday evening and we studied verses 1 to 5. And uh, we kicked off uh, really a transition section in this letter and in Paul's concern for Timothy as the young leader of the church at Ephesus. And now in verses 6 to 10, we're going to see a contrast to what we studied last week. Now you, I'm sure, are very aware that Paul is writing this. This is one of his final letters. Um, This letter, 2 Timothy, the second one to Timothy at Ephesus, and then the third one of Titus, were all called the pastoral letters because they're written to pastors, and they're specifically addressed to individuals who are providing leadership to the church. And Timothy is unique even as a pastor because he is a young pastor and he is an immature pastor in the sense of experience. And so Paul is writing to him to bolster his confidence, to outline what he should be concerned with and what should mark his life and how he's to go about assigning leadership and developing what God intends for the church to be. And several weeks ago, we had the privilege of looking at titles that outline for us what the church was to be about. It's the household of God, it is the church of the living God in verse 15 of chapter 3, and it's the pillar and the buttress or the foundation of the truth. That truth is the mystery of godliness, and the mystery was that Christ is the means, he was the one promised, and his name was not given, but he came, and Jesus of Nazareth was manifested in the flesh in verse 16 of chapter 3. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And then he was taken up into glory. And that is the mystery of godliness, that we can know God, that we can live as part of God's family, that we can enjoy the blessings of his promises, the mystery, the unrevealed mystery is that Christ would provide that opportunity, that Jesus would provide the means for us to know God and that the church would be established on the basis of the ministry of Jesus Christ and his apostles. That took us to chapter 4, and we looked at Paul redevoting himself to warning Timothy about the false teachers who were already present at Ephesus. And really we talked about there being a comparison or a contrast between false teaching and true teaching or false leadership if you want to make it even more specific, and true leadership within the church. So verses 1 to 5 really give us a clear picture of the error of the false teachers there in Ephesus. And verses 6 through 10 will provide tonight, I trust, the contrast, a comparison for our benefit of what it is to be a good servant of God. So we've seen what the bad servant looks like in verses 1 to 5 those who distort the truth, who add to it, those who forbid marriage and require abstinence, those who are legalistic, setting up standards above the Word of God, whereby spirituality is to be judged. And we have seen the error of their ways because God created everything and everything He created is good. And He has given those things that He made for our benefit if they're received with thanksgiving. So it is folly for them to forbid marriage and to require abstinence from certain foods. We're not given a lot of detail about the error of this, 
But certainly we can understand that they were adding to the scriptures a man-made list of regulations. So last week we looked at the guarantee of the false teachers. They were guaranteed to come. The Spirit is the one who promised their arrival. We looked at the nature of false teachers, and then we looked at the message that they brought as false teachers there in Ephesus. Paul now turns his attention from the false teachers to Timothy. And he contrasts true godliness, that is, to mark the life of this young pastor, this young church leader. And really this will kick off and it will carry through the end of the chapter as he'll give imperative after imperative or command after command to Timothy so that he is a good servant and a faithful servant, a good steward of the ministry that God has given to him. Okay? So I hope that brings you up to speed if you haven't been with us. We can read these verses together and I think that will help make us familiar as well with where we are. We'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 10. You can follow along in your scriptures with me as I read. Verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy, it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you, that being Timothy, if you, Timothy, put these things before the brothers or the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained or being nourished, being built up in the words of the faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Verse 7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Discipline yourself for godliness. For while bodily discipline or bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And that's referencing back to verse 8. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And this is the word of the Lord for us this evening. And we'll study particularly verses 6 through 10 in the minutes that are left for us to study God's word tonight. Now, We looked last week at a false teaching that put extra barriers, extra guardrails on God's people. And in particular, it was a a regiment of discipline, of restriction, personal restriction, that would ensure godliness for those within the church at Ephesus. It was merely external conformity but it was a discipline of their lives. They were to forbid from engaging in marriage, and they were to abstain from some list, some set of foods that were to be abstained from. And interestingly, in parallel, Paul has not left that idea far. And of course, we know that between verses 5 and 6, there is no break. Uh, Paul is dictating this. He is speaking this to the one who is writing it. 
and his secretary is quickly writing down what Paul says. And so between verse 5 and 6, there may just be a breath, but certainly not an entire paragraph heading that divides my translation of God's word. So right on the heels of the idea of restriction, of discipline of the life with these legalistic false teachers, Paul now addresses these two facets of godliness. The diet of the good servant and then the discipline of the good servant. So he will speak to the food and the source of intake for nourishment's sake for the good servant, for the one who is concerned to be godly and particularly as leadership within the church. And then he'll talk about the discipline of life that is to match this good servant, this faithful servant in the church. So he does not depart, but yet we are not talking about mere externals, but rather spiritual diet and spiritual discipline, which has God as its source, his grace as our dependence to accomplish it, and our hope set on him as the ultimate goal. Godliness is the goal of the diet and the discipline that we'll study this evening. Merit, favor with God, moving up in the ranks of religious merit is the goal of what we find in verses 1 to 5. Legalism is all about you getting you further along the road. Grace and disciplined grace is all about leaning on God because you have been saved and because you have been granted merit through the sacrifice of Christ. Not for the sake of gaining merit, but because merit has already been granted to you through Jesus Christ. So understand tonight that while your resistance may come up to comments about your disciplines as God's child and my disciplines as a leader within the local church, discipline and legalism are not the same. They are not inherently tied together. So disciplining your life, having a regimented routine for your spiritual development is not intrinsically legalistic. It's all about the motive, it's all about the goal, and it's all about the heart behind why and how we discipline our lives. And that's what we're going to study tonight. So, in verse 6 and the first part of verse 7, until we come to a period in verse 7 there in the middle of the verse, we're going to look at the diet of the good servant. There's a godly intake that he should be concerned about. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained. That's a difficult translation there. Nourished is a better word or built up. You'll be nourished, New American Standard uses, in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So, Here is the godly diet of the good servant of Christ Jesus. First of all, we see a dietary use in the wording of the first phrase, which is maybe catches us by surprise. If you put these things before the brothers, that is, if you serve them up on a platter to the brothers, if you distribute the proper food, you will be a good servant. So Timothy, as a leader within the church, is responsible not just for his own spiritual development and intake of diet, but he is also responsible for the diet of those who gather at Ephesus within the local church to worship God. He is to put before the brothers and sisters sound doctrine, 
He is to be concerned about the food and the diet spiritually of God's people. He is to make the table, set out the food so that God's people can eat freely. He is to prepare and study for the sake of putting these things before the brothers. Now, what are these things? These things are, are pointing backwards to what we learned in verses 1 to 5. These things are hard truths because he is to be confronting and publicly putting before the brothers and sisters within the church the error of these false teachers and the priority of the truth in the church. That is the immediate context that Paul is addressing. We could draw it all the way back to the church being the pillar and the foundation of the truth and understand that the offering that has to be laid before God's people for Timothy to be counted as a good servant is only the truth of the Word of God. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So he has to distribute the proper food spiritually for God's people if he is to be a good servant. And then there are two or three, there are three more phrases that define what it is to be a good servant and what your diet looks like. Secondly, we have a phrase beginning with being directly tied to this good servant. What is the good servant's diet? He is trained, he is nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, that being Timothy. Two segments of the diet are wrapped into one package here. Not only is he to lay out before and set the table for the eating, spiritual eating of the flock for the feeding of the sheep, but the good servant who is concerned with godliness and who has godliness as his priority is to be nourished, he is to be fed, he is to be built up himself in the word of the faith. The words of the faith encompass the whole of Scripture. And the doctrine, the sound doctrine, the good doctrine that he has followed is the theology that flows out of the words of faith. Does that make sense? So the spiritual food, the diet of the man of God, of the leadership within the church, must be the words of the faith. That is, the very word of God is to be consumed continually and habitually by those whose, whose goal is godliness. And not just the words of faith as in reading, but the doctrine that flows from these words of faith. And Timothy, we know, had followed that truth from a very young age because of the heritage that was his in his mother and his grandmother who taught him the scriptures. And so Paul says, well, there is a concern for the diet, but it is not in restrictions of foods in a physical sense. Rather, it is a very deep and consistent concern in a spiritual sense of the nourishment and food that feeds the life of the one consumed with godliness. Now, there's one last facet of the godly diet of the good servant and it's found in the beginning of verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So in the common sense of the word diet, there is one facet that is to be restricted. Timothy is to restrict his diet from consuming and paying attention to, in a spiritual sense, silly myths and genealogies and the error of these false teachers 
that were at work in the church at Ephesus. Irreverent, silly myths. Foolish doctrine. So what is to be the dietary concern of the good servant of Christ Jesus within the church? Well, it's first a responsibility to offer up the proper food for the people of God, the brothers and sisters. But before that can ever be done, it's a life consumed with taking in the words of the faith and the doctrine that flow from the words of the faith. And then finally, it is an abstinence from errant doctrine. Living within the truth so that doctrine that is errant can be exposed, but not having something to do with irreverent and silly myths. This is the lifelong pursuit of the leader in the church who desires to be a good servant of the Word of God. And this is the lifelong pursuit of all who desire to be godly. The word godliness is only used 15 times in the entire New Testament. I back that up. 19 times in the entire New Testament. 15 of those 19 times are in the pastoral letters. And 13 of the 15 that are in the pastoral letters are in 1 Timothy. Paul is emphasizing godliness at the highest level. And it is appropriate because the error of the false teachers within the church at Ephesus was to place the attention of God's people on something other than their heart condition before God and their likeness to the character of God, which is godliness. So they were distracted by silly myths, by genealogies, by endless discussion. They were distracted by regulations and rules that were outside the bounds of Scripture. And all of those things were focusing their attention. The false teachers were focusing the attention of God's people away from their heart before God. And so Paul is concerned that Timothy, first of all, be consumed with godliness and that he put these things before the brothers as well so that they might understand them. There's an obvious comparison going on here between the false teacher's concern over food and the godly leader's concern over spiritual nourishment. This is the grace-centered and grace-disciplined life versus the works-based legalism of false teaching. I think that this passage, again, puts the onus on your leadership here in the church and your young leadership at that. Many of you have come to me, and I appreciate your concern, that there be dedicated time for the nourishment of my own heart before the Lord. Because that's vital. There will be no good servant. There will be no faithful ministry. There will be no godliness, lasting godliness, at Grace Church of the Valley if its leadership is not trained up, nourished, fed by the words of the faith and the doctrine that flows from the Word of God. Nor will we be able consistently to lay before the brothers and the sisters within the church the truth of God's word if it has not been digested and it has not been fed upon throughout the week. Robert Murray McShane says this powerful quote. He is my historical hero of the faith. He died at 28 and had a short ministry, but a powerful ministry nonetheless. And on my wall, directly across from my desk, is this quote. My personal holiness is the greatest need of my people. 
or my people's greatest need is my attention to godliness. And so I ask you to pray and then to imitate. In the conclusion this, this evening, I wanted to make the point, and I'll make it early, that leaders are the first priority of Paul's concern. Timothy is his prior, priority. He is his primary concern. But the people of the church, we've discussed this before, you do not get to sit tonight and say, well, Adam better be about nourishing his heart with the Word of God. That's right. He better. But only as an example and only as a servant of you who are also to be nourished and built up in the words of the faith and the, and the good doctrine that you have followed. You have begun. Most of you, if not all of you, have begun. You have followed Christ. You have submitted your lives and now you and I are both to be nourished on the word of the truth. So that's the godly diet of the good servant. And then we'll conclude with the broader section here, beginning in the second half of verse 7 and going through verse 10. We'll see the godly discipline of the good servant as well. The godly diet is spiritual, and it is based on the words of the faith. The godly discipline is all about godliness and not about personal discipline for the body. Picking up in the middle of verse 7, Paul says, Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Discipline is appropriate when it has the right goal and the right source behind it. Paul here says, rather, that is in contrast to giving your time and giving your attention to silly myths that would distract you from what's important, young Timothy, rather, discipline yourself, train yourself as an athlete in training for the purpose of godliness. Set your life on a course of discipline with the end goal being the character of God reflected in your life. And I would assume that outside of prayer, personal evangelism, discussions about pride, this, the discussion about our disciplines in our spiritual life is one of the most universally convicting, right? The disciplines of godliness. And Paul does not expound on what it is to discipline himself for godliness. It's not as if he explains this further to us. But the discipline of the leader within the local church, in contrast to the discipline of the false teachers who were refusing marriage and abstaining from things God created, the discipline of the life of the good servant within the church has as its goal maturity, which is seen in godliness. Bodily discipline is contrasted against this discipline for the sake of clarification. And I have known verse 8, I don't know how long. This is one that has been memorized somehow and has been passed along and many people know this verse. But verse 8 gives us more of an, of an understanding of why we are to train and discipline our lives for the sake of godliness. Why the Word of God is to be the centerpiece of our life. Why our prayer and our intercession before God is to be the centerpiece of our existence. Why? Why are we to discipline ourselves, setting a regiment for these things? Well, look at this contrast. 
bodily training is of some value. But godliness is of value in every way. And then this little phrase, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Bodily discipline versus heart discipline or godliness discipline is a comparison or a contrast between temporal value and eternal value. Many of us have at some time or another, whether it be present or not present, have disciplined our bodies. And I would say most of us probably are not comfortable with how much we discipline our bodies at the present time. But in the past, you remember what it was to discipline your bodies. Whether it was for a sport that you were preparing for, whether it was for the sake of health and keeping your body running well, bodily training is of value. But it is only temporal value. It is immediate value. It is value only in this life. Healthy, fit people die. And their fit body stays in that coffin. I was reading a commentary and they were talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger and I think it had to be an older commentary, at least 20 years older, because it talked about how fit and, and, and good shape Arnold Schwarzenegger was in. And that fitness is coming to its conclusion if you've seen our governor any time in the, in the recent past. But his fitness will end in this life. And so will yours and so will mine. It's not that it's unimportant. It's not that it's not of value. It is of value, but it is a temporal value. Godliness is contrasted against that and the discipline that we should give and the attention we should give to our godliness is double. It's all the greater because godliness values both now and eternity. So understand this. This is not just temporal versus eternal. This is temporal value versus temporal and eternal value. If you discipline your body, if you are careful with your diet, if you run or jog or walk or play sports or do something to keep your body in good shape, you will value in this present life. If you give yourself entirely to disciplining yourself for godliness, you will be valued in this life and it will have value in the life to come, in eternity. So there should be a twofold value to our discipline for the sake of godliness, and particularly for the discipline of the life of the leadership within the church. This, again, is not legalism. Godliness is to be the highest discipline in the life of the good servant of the local body. Is that understandable? Discipline is vital. This is one area of my life where I have struggled and I desire to continue to grow and to be sanctified in the discipline for godliness so that life becomes more and more simple and more and more singular in its focus. And godliness permeates everything. And godliness is the desire of every decision. And godliness feeds the activities of every day. It's said of Billy Graham's father-in-law, that he, though he ran a 400-bed hospital on the mission field, would rise every morning at 4.30 to spend two hours only reading the Word of God. No books, no correspondence, just his Bible for two hours at 4.30 every morning. And he was said to be a walking Bible encyclopedia. He had read through the Bible countless times. 
point of those illustrations is not guilt, right? And the point is not tomorrow we all try to get up at 4.30, right? And read our Bibles for two hours. The point is his life was such that busyness, busyness of life did not matter because he was disciplined for godliness. Godliness took the highest priority. You will always have time for what is most important. And I, as a leader, and as an example, and a servant of you, will always have time to devote to what is most important. And what could be more important to us, as God's people, than godliness and maturity in Christ? Now this is the diet, the Word of God, in verse 6 and 7, and now the discipline of the life of the good servant. Now Paul concludes this section with verses 9 and 10. And verse 9 is really a concluding statement. It's referencing back to what he has said in verse 7 and 8. And he's saying this is a good and trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance. This is worth you committing to memory that discipline for godliness is of all value, both in this life and in the life to come. That statement should be a guiding proverb of our lives and of the life of the leadership within the church. And now he comes to verse 10 as an explanation of what drives this discipline. What is the motivation behind the godly discipline of the good servant? What is the focus? What is the attention in this discipline? Verse 10 says, For, this, for to this end, that being godliness, for this, to this end we toil and strive. We work ourselves to the point of exhaustion, for the sake of godliness. Because, or since, we have our hope set on the living God. So hope on the living God. And then here is the definition given to the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. For to this end we toil and strive. And here is the focus of the discipline for godliness because we have our hope set on the living God. There has been a past event that has settled our future, right? Hope in the New Testament sense is not the way we use it, like I hope they have chocolate ice cream at this party. Hope in the New Testament sense is not an unknown expectation. It is a grounded expectation in truth. So biblical hope is knowing what the future holds and being settled in your confidence of what is to come. Discipline for godliness is settled in the hope of the living God. And it is the living God who has saved us. Therefore, we discipline ourselves for the end of godliness. So what causes or what drives this discipline? It is none other than a hope in the power of and in the grace of the living God. Now, the living God is further defined for us, and this may catch us by surprise. And make no mistake, this has had a lot of ink spilled over these next phrases. Who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe? And I can tell you right off the bat that many have been confused by the statement that the living God saves everybody and somehow especially saves those who believe. It's difficult because our vernacular, our Christian 
vocabulary uses the word saved or savior in a very specific sense. And so we might ask one another, well, is your family member saved? And we understand in our vocabulary, that means eternally saved. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about salvation from sin in a permanent sense because of the sacrifice of Christ and their faith in Him. When we come to verse 10, we find that God is in some sense the Savior of all people. So in some sense, everyone is saved. And then there is an especially saved group of people, and those are those who are believing. So they are the ones that we categorize in our normal speech as the saved, or the body of Christ, or those within the church, or those who have come to faith, whatever it is that you use. Now, what is to be the understanding? Well, Paul has not moved far from what he talked about in verses 7 and 8. And verses 7 and 8 were a contrast between spiritual discipline and bodily discipline. And that contrast was built on what? It was built on the value in this life versus a value that is here and forever. He hasn't departed far from that. And in fact, that is the answer to what he speaks of here. All people, that is, all who are living, are saved in a temporal sense. You understand that as we exist on this earth, every breath we take is salvation from what is guaranteed for sinners. Right? So there is a temporal sense in which all sinners are saved in this life. Because as long as they live, they do not experience the judgment and the wrath of God in its fullness against their sin. But there is a particular salvation that is only for those who believe. And that salvation is a special salvation by the grace of God, for it is not just the salvation from His wrath now, but it's a salvation from His wrath for eternity. And so the living God, He is our hope. He is the focus of our discipline. He is the attention of all that we do to train ourselves for godliness And that living God is a gracious and a patient God, saving sinners in the sense of temporal salvation from wrath, and especially saving and eternally saving those who believe. So God is the center of those who would discipline themselves for godliness. And this concludes the contrast between the unfaithful or the bad servants that are found in verses 1 to 5, and the good servant that Timothy was to be in verses 6 through 10. The good servant has a spiritual diet that he is concerned with, and he has spiritual disciplines that guide his life and produce godliness in him. All of the truth that is found in verses 6 through 10 is centered on the hope that we have in the living God. There is no mention in verses 1 to 5, of any attention of the legalistic false teachers on the hope of the living God. But it is the centerpiece of the good servant and his ministry to the local church. So, discipline and diet are crucial for the good servant of God, but they stand in stark contrast to the error of external legalism demanded by the false teacher because the discipline and diet that are crucial are spiritual, uh, is spiritual, and is eternal. 
It is for the end of godliness. So let's ask ourselves some hard questions tonight. And I'll ask them to myself, as I already have, along with you. First and foremost, we must apply God's word in its primary context. So is the leadership of Grace Church of the Valley disciplined for the purpose of godliness? Is that the standard that you are holding us to? And it should be. It should be the question and the concern of you as God's people towards your leadership. Are you serious about being a body that is made up of good servants of the living God? Or are we content to fulfill our religious duty to feel good about coming together every week, to walk away with more knowledge, and to go on our merry way for another week before we come back next Sunday? Or are we consumed with the thought of being a good servant, of being one who is marked by godliness? If so, our intake spiritually and our discipline of our lives will mark it. How is your spiritual diet? What fuels your spiritual life? Now, many of you have told me that one of the reasons that you're here is because of the diet you are receiving from those responsible to feed you. The spiritual life can no more exist on spiritual cotton candy than a child can grow and be nourished by snacks and granola bars as the center of their diet. So I ask you and I ask myself, how are our eating habits spiritually? Do we feast on little sugar highs of candy from the Word of God? Or are we coming and nourishing our souls and maturing and growing because of the words of faith and the good doctrine that we have followed? Thirdly, are we disciplining our lives appropriately for godliness? Are we disciplining our lives, and really these fit together, are we centering our lives and regimenting our lives for the ultimate goal of godliness, or are we living in a worldly sense? And we always throw around the word worldliness. Well, that's worldly. And in fact, it loses its effect because we don't even know what we're talking about when we talk about worldliness. But do you live, is your life guided by the priority of godliness or the priority of this life? Is your focus and your energy and your attention given to getting ahead, to getting all of the things that this world says is important and that will all end when you die? Or is your life centered on the eternal value and the temporal value of being found conformed to the image of Christ and being in the character of God. So, are we disciplining? Are we carving up our lives? Are we evaluating our lives? So that we might see the appropriate discipline for the sake of godliness. Leaders first, but not exclusively. Leaders first, but all of us as God's people are called to be good servants, faithful stewards of the ministry of his gospel. The stakes are high. Okay? This is not take it or leave it material. The stakes are enormously high because the church was bought with the blood of Christ. So he's worthy of our discipline and he's worthy of our concern with our spiritual diet. Why would we discipline ourselves for anything other than reflecting the one who has died to secure our salvation? 
God's eternal glory is at stake. Nothing does more damage than quote-unquote Christians who are unnourished, who are malnutritioned spiritually, and who are undisciplined in their godliness, walking about day-to-day life, speaking as if they are the mouthpiece for the Lord and His kingdom purposes. As God's people, may we be faithful and concerned, and as leadership within your church, may you hold the standard high that we be concerned and nourished on the truth and disciplined for the end goal of living godly lives.